please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, we're going to be in verses 11 through 32 this morning. Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. It says, beginning in verse 11, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Verse 14. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So when he went, so he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. Verse 17, But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Verse 20, So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found, and they began to celebrate. Verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered him and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you filled the fat and calf, you killed the fat and calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me. All that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was, was dead. And he's begun to live. He was lost and he has been found. Let's pray. Lord, we worship you for your glory and your might and your majesty. And all those songs we just sang, we exalted your self-sufficiency. You were complete in perfection and therefore unchangeable. You have life in yourself and therefore need nothing from us. And yet all those songs also focused upon our weakness. We are flesh, here one moment and gone the next. And so we cry out to you. Our enemy is greater than we are. The nations are powerful. The enemies of the church 
are like wolves and we are like lambs, like sheep. And so, Father, we look to you and we ask that you would have mercy on us. Father, that you would hear our prayer, that our cry would come into your presence and that you would answer us. And Lord, you have answered us. You yourself came in weakness, in human weakness. You took upon our frailty. You took upon our, our sinfulness. And you made an end of it. Lord, you nailed it to the cross. And so now, Father, as we come to hear your word, we ask that you would open our ears, that you would give us ears to hear, that, Father, the things, the multitude of things that distract us and keep us from receiving your word, we ask that you would um, push them far from our hearts, that your word would reign, that your word would, uh, the seed that's sown, that it would find good ground. And Father, that it would be mingled with faith. The word is dead unless our faith arises to meet it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us faith to hear what's being said. Father, we submit to your word. We recognize it as our life and as our good and as our only refuge. Father, feed us, uh, edify us, correct us. We prostrate ourselves before you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So I said last week that rather than calling this story the story of the prodigal son, it should be called the story of the prodigal sons. And really, if there is a prodigal in this story, it's not so much the younger son who strikes out for the distant country, but it is the elder son, the one who stays home. Remember the occasion for the story. The Pharisees grumbling against Jesus' association with sinners. The sinners, if we go back to that chapter, the beginning of the chapter, the sinners have accepted Jesus' invitation. They're coming to hear the word that he's speaking. It's the Pharisees who haven't. And it's reflected in the story. The younger son ventures out. He loses everything in the distant country. But then he comes home. The elder son, on the other hand, never left home. But he never really was home. He never really was a part of his father's house. And so Jesus, in the story that he constructs, invites the Pharisees to come home, so to speak. Like the elder son, they grumble and complain at the father's compassion and refuse to come in. But he goes out to them, Jesus does, and he pleads with them to join the celebration. And the story ends with the father's pleading. There's no fairy tale ending, but the story ends with the question hanging over the passage. Will the Pharisees respond? Will they overcome their grumbling and join in the celebration? The point is, the primary audience of the story are the Pharisees. This story is not so much intended to make us weepy moved by the son's return and the father's compassion for him, as it is to really leave us thunderstruck. And we will see exactly that. So the passage says that when the elder brother inquired about the festivities, about everything that was going on, and he found out that his brother had returned, he became angry. And what becomes immediately clear 
is that all the old as that although the older brother the elder brother had remained in his father's house he was far from his father the distance between them is demonstrated in their different responses to the prodigal son's return and that difference could not be more stark the father upon seeing his son returning home runs out to meet him and celebrates the elder son however refuses to even be in his presence Henry Nouwen, in his book on the story of the prodigal son, he says, Exteriorly, he did, all the good thing, he did all the things a good son is supposed to do. But interiorly, he had wandered away from his father. He did his duty, worked hard every day, and fulfilled all his obligations, but became increasingly unhappy and unfree. He was near the father physically, but he had wandered a great distance internally. And in the elder son's response, its startling unlikeness to his father's, something becomes clear. And it's that there are two ways to be lost. There is the visible, quite obvious way to be lost, journeying into the distant country. And then there is the harder to identify, interior lostness. Now, the younger son represents the visible, more traditional lostness. He dishonors his family. He makes no pretensions about hiding his greed and lust. His actions are blatant. He knows it's wrong, and so does everyone else. And therefore, there's something very clear-cut about his sin, and thus something very clear-cut about his restoration. He comes to his senses. He turns from his ways And he returns to the father. It's all very dramatic and stark. It's the classic story of human failure and restitution. And it's been told countless times. And maybe it's some of your story. And of course it's easy to sympathize with. But the lostness of the elder son is harder to identify. In studying this passage I came across Rembrandt's classic painting. The Return of the Prodigal Son. And I think there's something about the visual aid that brings the contrast between the younger son and the elder son home. So consider the younger son. His lostness is apparent. In the picture, his garments are tattered and soiled. His beard has been shaved and so is his head. His sandals are broken and his feet are dirty. All the outward signs are there. He's disgraceful. He barely looks like a normal human, but he's embraced by his father. I love that the tenderness in his father's hands on his shoulders and the way the son leans into his father's chest. But then consider the elder son. He stands above the canvas like a dignified figure. He's dressed in a long flowing robe. He has a stately walking staff and his hands are crossed neatly and properly. There's an air of respectability and propriety about the elder son. And compared to his younger brother, there are no visible signs of lostness. The elder brother looks the part. He's obedient and dutiful and hardworking. He's respected and admired and considered in the community to be a model son. Yet, 
when confronted by his father's compassion, his inward lostness erupts from beneath the surface. The passage says he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. The father's motion toward his son, toward his elder son, coming out to plead with him, is similar to the one he made to his younger son, seeing him a great distance away and coming out, running to go visit him. Both his sons are lost. And so the father pleads with his son, but the elder son remains entrenched. He says, verse 29, he said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Now we'll come to the reason for the elder son's offense in a minute. But notice the distance that he creates between him and his family. Look, he says, he doesn't address his father as father. He says, look, And then he says, this son of yours, he cannot even summon himself to call his brother, his brother. And most telling of all, he relates to his father, not as a son, but as a slave. He says, I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. It's possible, as demonstrated in the elder son, to be with God, to be with the father yet to be far from the Father. And as we said, this lostness is a more subtle lostness. One can say and do the right things, maintaining all the outward appearances, yet be estranged from God inwardly. And as opposed to the lostness that drives someone in the distant country, this lostness, this more subtle lostness, manifests itself in anger and resentment and, I think ultimately, in an an inability to rejoice. The reality is, is that a certain bitterness can enter into one's heart. A lack of freedom and joy can overtake one's life. And it happens, here's the important thing, it happens when one ceases relating to God as Father, and begins relating to God as law. For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. That is not the way one addresses their father. That's the language of a slave. The relation between the elder son and his father has been uprooted from its familial context love and openness, and transplanted into an alien context of law, obedience, and reward. And within the company of the faithful, the church, believers, this type of lostness is more prevalent. Sometimes there's just a fear of not wanting to be labeled as one of them who runs out, and so one just stays they just stay. They do the right things. And it's possible in the, routine, in the routine of obedience and duty 
for one's heart to slip into this posture, to go from relating to God as Father, freedom and love and, and security, to slave, to obedience, reward, to insecurity, to ultimately fear. And it seems that this slave mindset is the default of the heart. And if one is not on guard against it, aware that it's constantly there, their heart will inevitably revert to what it knows best. They'll slip into this mode of relating to God. And so thus what we discover in the elder son and subsequently in ourselves is an immaturity. The elder son looks the part, but he is yet to mature into full sonship. And that's very possible for us to look the part, to do the right things, and yet inwardly to lack the relationship of father-son, father-daughter. Again, for the elder son, the relationship is solely about obedience, about command and duty. He has yet to experience the true freedom of sonship. And we're not putting him forth as some sort of, you know, wicked figure. Hardly the case. There's a lot of sympathy with the elder son. And I think what he falls into is the particular danger of being an elder son. Because an elder son has not gone through the pilgrimage that the younger son um, went through. And, and ultimately what made him realize what it means to be a son. Younger sons, in their, dis, in their journey into the distant country, going off and living that life, for a lot of us, the life that we're, the only reason we don't do it is just we're afraid to do it. There, there's a desire to go there, but I just don't want to be labeled that. Now, the older sons, the younger son rather does that. And in doing that, they make a discovery that's harder for elder sons to make. The younger son, his lostness is plain and his acceptance is plain and therefore his sonship is more readily accepted. There can be no doubts about the way his father receives him. Coming to his father in this utter desperation and fear and then the father just embracing him the way he did. It's so clear, it's so forward. How could he possibly uh, uh, misunderstand the way the father loves him? He can't. It's so clear. But for elder sons... For those who never leave home and remain in obedience, it's more difficult for them to live into their sonship. And what makes it most difficult is that the younger son leaves. And when the younger son leaves, what it does is it provides the elder son a foil to compare and contrast themselves against. The younger son leaves and the elder brother says to himself, I'm not going to do those things, and therefore the Father will accept me. I'm not going to venture out into the distant country, but I'm going to stay right here at home. And again, if you have grown up with siblings, you know how much that dynamic plays into things. The elder brother stays, and for that he's commendable. It's a good thing to stay. But oftentimes, elder brothers stay for the wrong reason. They stay for the wrong reason. They stay to get up, to get a leg up, rather, on their brother. 
again, they stay, they see, okay, they see that and say, okay, if I don't do that, Father's going to accept me. So pay attention to the elder son's speech. It's full of comparison and bitterness. There it is on the screen again. He said to his father, look, for so many years, I have been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you never gave me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. So the elder son stays home, but not for the right reasons, not for reasons of true sonship. He stayed home ultimately because he thought it might earn him his father's approval and blessing. And when the, elder, the younger son returns, his whole world comes crashing down. What he thought to be true, the way he related to the father is proved to be something that was never the case. And so that's what makes the elder brother's position uniquely dangerous. His goodness masquerades, uh, or rather his lostness masquerades as goodness. I've stayed home. I'm a good son. I'm worthy of blessing. That's the way the logic goes. Again, Henry Nouwen, he says, it's far more pernicious. Something that, and I think this is a really insightful phrase, something that has attached itself to the underside of my virtue. It isn't, or rather he says, isn't it good to be obedient, dutiful, law-abiding, hard-working, and self-sacrificing? And still it seems that my resentment and complaints are mysteriously tied to such praiseworthy attitudes. So what we see in the elder son is that his very obedience is what alienates him. His goodness Something is attached to its underside, and that's what's causing this fracture in his relationship with the father. And as we've said, the elder son is often approached with less sympathy than the younger son. But if we put ourselves in his shoes, it seems that he has a legitimate gripe against his father. For so many years I've been serving you. And I have never neglected a command of yours, he says. And indeed, he speaks truly. The father doesn't deny it. He has been obedient. He has done all the right things. He has obeyed his father. But, he continues, when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you, filled, you killed the fattened calf for him. And so there's no need for us to be precious little saints and immediately side with the Father. Otherwise, we're going to short-circuit the passage. Imagine for a moment that was you. So consider the Pharisees and, and their scrupulous obedience. They absolutely, absolutely did everything right. So imagine, that's you. It does seem unfair, doesn't it? The Father's actions seem to contradict our sense of justice and equity. I spent my entire life diligently serving this man, we might say to ourselves. And it's made to look of no account. What is it all worth in the end? It's utterly disregarded because the way that this man has accepted this sinner. My steadfastness is overlooked. All my years of, of diligent service are set to the side. While his treachery is rewarded. They're celebrating for him. So let's be honest, if we put ourselves in his shoes, we too would feel disregarded 
and unrecognized and angry. But, here's the point, the passage wants us to side with the elder brother, to feel his offense against the father. Because, in so doing, the sheer, lo- the sheer freeness of God's love shines through. When we can resonate with the elder son, we can really realize how radical God's love is. According to an obedience reward system, I obey, you, you bless me, I do what's right, and, and you return good things to me, the elder son's complaint is indeed a legitimate one, right? He's done everything right. He should be blessed according to that system. But God doesn't relate to us according to that system, does he? God doesn't relate to us according to obedience and reward. He relates to us on the basis of grace. And grace is given in utter disregard for one's obedience or lack thereof. Whether one is a younger son who goes off into the distant country, or one is an elder son who stays home and does all the right things. Grace doesn't factor those things in. And so we say sometimes that grace is unconditional. I think it's better to say that grace is unconditioned. There's a difference between those. Unconditional and unconditioned. Unconditional means no strings attached. That nothing in return is expected. And I don't think God dispenses grace that way. There are conditions to it. It's expected that in receiving grace, our lives mature into godliness. Think Titus 3. The grace of God has appeared that we might become these type of people, living in righteousness. There is an expectation when grace is given. It's more proper to say, rather than unconditional, that God's grace is unconditioned. It is given without regard to the worthiness of the recipient. And this is demonstrated in the father's actions toward his son. He is not acting in accordance to some moral calculus. If he was, the younger son comes home, he has to do his time, he has to pay his penance, he has to grovel before the father. The father's not acting that way. There's not a moral calculus there. The elder son, the father relates to him also on the basis of grace. And hence... The elder son is offended. Everything that he thought to be true is not true. He supposed that the father related to him on the basis of his obedience, that his service would be rewarded accordingly. But that's not the case. It was grace for him too. And so perhaps the best word for God's grace is incongruous. That's a word we don't use much, but I think it's helpful. It means not in harmony or keeping with the surroundings of something. God's grace is not in harmony with human notions of fairness, of our standards of reward and obedience, of disobedience and punishment. God's grace, rather, is totally unconditioned, good or bad, righteous or unrighteous, younger son or elder son, Romans eleven six, the Apostle Paul says, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. 
So if grace is really grace, then the apostle says it cannot be on the basis of works. That is, it can't be given according to a pre-existing standard. It has to be unqualified, unearned, and utterly free. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. Now, conceptually, that's hard to understand. It's better demonstrated. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a landowner that went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So at various times throughout the day, the landowner hired laborers to work on his property. So first he goes out at sunup, 6 o'clock in the morning, and he brings in a batch of workers. And then he goes again at 9 in the morning and brings in another batch. And then again at 3 in the afternoon. And then finally, just before the close of day, at 6, the work day, at 5, the workday ends at 6, he brings in still another group of workers. And so to the first group that he hired, he says, uh, I'm going to give you um, a, a denarius for your work, which is a pretty substantial amount. Um, and to the other groups that came in after, he promised to pay them whatever's right. So the first, I'll give you a denarius. Everyone else, I'll pay you what's right, what's fair. Matthew chapter 20, verse 8, the passage says, When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. So, the laborers who had worked only one hour, had probably really done anything, just get their tools out and then do five minutes of work, pack their tools up and go home, they received a full day's wage, a denarius. So you can imagine the anticipation of those who had been there since early morning. If he paid them that much, how much more us? You know, they're thinking, we're going to go on vacation. We're receiving uh, time and a half plus, plus whatever else that is. But the passage continues. Matthew 20, verse 10, it says, When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour? And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? demonstrated is the scandal of grace. The laborers who had borne the burden of the day thought that they would receive more because they worked more. Yet, with this landowner, everyone is equal and paid equally. And again, let's put ourselves in their shoes. I certainly would be grumbling and I would probably refuse to work for this man ever again. How is this fair? How is it that these bums can get paid the same wage as me? I've been here all day. I've been working so hard. I've been doing everything that's been expected of me. And what about these guys? This isn't right. I could imagine if this story hit the news today, we'd all be decrying this landowner as a socialist. 
This is America. That isn't how it works. Hard work is rewarded. Laziness. They weren't there at six. They weren't doing the hard work. We were. That shouldn't be rewarded. I think it's fair to say that Jesus would be a bad businessman. And yet, and yet, this is simply what it means that God relates to us on the basis of grace and not our obedience or disobedience, our worthiness or unworthiness. The hours that one has put into it, bearing the burden and the scorching heat of the day, doesn't come into the Lord's calculation. And so he's doing us elder brothers no wrong by graciously accepting our younger brothers. He's only offending our sense of pride by disregarding our hard work. And so his words come to us with great clarity. It's not lawful. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? You see, the elder, elder brother began to enter the picture. And so that bitterness and grumbling that arises within us inevitably, um, or and the inability to rejoice and celebrate rises from this. Not knowing the freedom of grace and choosing to relate to God on a contractual basis. Obedience and reward. And so one will always be offended and will always consider themselves unfairly treated unless they know grace. Why is this happening to me, Lord? I'm, I've done all these things for you. I, I've, I've done my part. Why, why, are these, why is this happening? Why are other people being blessed? Why, why do they get the fatted calf? And, and, and that's what happens when I say, I want to relate to the Lord on obedience reward. It's all grace. It doesn't matter what you've done or haven't done. And so as we mentioned, the story closes on a decidedly undecided note. The father graciously pleads with his elder son to share in the celebration. And before we hear his response, the story ends. And the reason is because the story is for the Pharisees, not the sinners and tax collectors. They were the ones who grumbled like the elder brother. Thus, through the abrupt ending, Jesus invites them to share in heaven's joy. Sinners are repenting. The lost are being found. This is cause for celebration. Now, it might seem an easy thing to do to celebrate uh, a sinner's repentance. Yet, for all the reasons we talked about, it's actually very difficult. In fact, it seems the elder son's journey to sonship is harder than the younger son's. I think it's easier to return home from a lustful bender than it is to return home from a bitterness that has captured one's heart. There's a lot more personal work that needs to be done. The challenge is putting aside one sense of worthiness and humbly accepting grace. Christianity is challenging for all, but particularly for the morally upright, for those who have it together. Just to survey the Gospels. Those that Jesus comes into conflict with again and again are the people who have it together. And the people who flock to him are those who are the, des- the, the, the destitute, who have no righteousness. I came across an article about why, I thought it was very interesting, about why this country's elites, the elite class, right, left, whatever, um, why 
it's unlikely that they will ever come to embrace Christianity. And one of the main reasons was that um, it undermines a sense of mastery. Uh, and, and this mastery that the elites are attracted to, the article says, is the experience of earned distinction. Mastery, in other words, is being an elder son and not a younger son. So the article goes on, elites are, are winners, right? These are people who get into the best schools, who achieve the highest. They're hardworking, they're ambitious, they're organized, they're competent. And though not all of them, but generally as a group, they take pride in that identity, right? In being elites, in distinguishing themselves from the rest of the pack. And so the article goes on. It says, it's hard for such people to get a religion like Christianity because... It doesn't offer them the sense of mastery which they're used to. In fact, it usually undermines it in a pretty shocking way. Most people who become Christian, who try to follow the commandments, find that it's really difficult. And not in the good difficult sense that elites love, the hard workout, the challenging job, but difficult because it involves repeated failures. Failures which may continue for your entire earthly life. This is a life project where you don't get to view yourself as the hero. Instead, it requires that you accept you're going to be the difficult person in the relationship. That on net, you'll be a recipient of forgiveness more than you get to be the person who generously offers it to those who are less fortunate, able, virtuous. And so for this reason, because grace undermines one sense of personal distinction, having it together and others not having it together, The article concludes, elites are just less likely to come to the faith. It's harder for them because they want to hold on to that. And they come to the faith, you have to drop that. Absolutely, that has to go out the door. And now I find that an apt description of the elder brother's problem. To embrace his father's pleading, to celebrate his brother's return, he has to put down his desire to be the one who has it all together. He's invested himself in this identity as the elder son, and that's got to go. And pulling back from the story to consider its wider context, we see that that was the problem of the Pharisees. They loved being distinct, hyper-devoted, uber-diligent elder sons, praying on every street corner, wearing the long robes, tithing so that everyone could see it when they did it. They loved that sense of superiority that it gave them. But here's the thing, grace erases those distinctions. It matters not whether one's life and whether one has their life altogether or whether it's falling apart. What matters is God's liberal, profuse generosity. So thus, to enter the kingdom, to receive grace, elder brothers and Pharisees and those who have, to get, who have it together have to put that identity aside and place themselves on the same level as sinners. That's a hard thing to do, to say, okay, my righteousness counts for nothing. Even now as Christians, my good works, all the devotion I've shown to the church and to the Lord counts for nothing, at least in relation to the Lord in the sense that we're talking about. So in embracing a sinner's repentance, celebrating grace for the unworthy, they're subsequently accepting that grace for themselves. Remember, Jesus' actions are an offense because they don't operate according to the Pharisees' moral calculus. And so Jesus challenges them to overcome their faulty moral calculus by 
embracing his, by doing as he does. So if they choose to join in the celebration, they're leaving their worthiness behind and embracing the equality, the scandal of grace. And so I said last week that it's hard for us to receive grace because the implanted notion that we need to earn it, right? It's hard for me to accept God's love because I feel like I haven't done anything for it. I feel unworthy. That's a hard thing to get over. That's the case of the younger son. But that same notion, feeling that I need to earn it, is also what makes it hard to extend grace. Because I have to earn it, it makes it hard to receive it. Because I have to earn it, it makes, hard to, it, makes it hard to give grace. And that's the case of the elder son. Now imagine if the elder son embraces his younger brother, he would be breaking his own moral calculus. He would be acknowledging that his own life of obedience and, and, and righteousness ultimately doesn't count. But that's the point. That's the, 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 the aim that Jesus is trying to push the Pharisees toward. In extending grace to others, we operate by heaven's moral calculus, which is hardly even a moral calculus. In doing so, we receive grace for ourselves. And it seems that's the only way for the elder brothers among us. And I think we all have that at one point or another. I think when we do well, it's really hard not to fall into that elder brother mentality. It's like I can, it's, I, I'm more often the younger son who blows it all the time and, Lord, I need grace, I need grace. And then the moment I become the elder brother, I, this sense of, you know, I'm a good Christian floods into my heart. And so in sharing grace, um, in giving love, in offering forgiveness, we receive grace, we receive love, we receive forgiveness. And so, again, I'll wrap up now. The thrust of the passage, the thrust of the passage is that we would do as the Father did, right? That's the invitation to the elder brother. Do what the Father's doing. Emulate him. Copy him. So how do we do that? How do we emulate the Father? I want to leave you with three things. First, be careless like God. The Father is careless of his reputation. He runs out to meet his disobedient son, and he welcomes him home without hesitation. He doesn't ask him, what have you been doing? Why did you ruin my estate? He doesn't subject him to questioning. He's not concerned with that. He's concerned with the well-being of his son. Be careless like God. Go and do likewise. Second, be a poor judge of character like God. The father does not protect the treasures of of his love and forgiveness. But he gives his love and forgiveness to to someone that any fool could realize they're going to be a failure. The father lavishes his wealth and respect and even the fattened calf on a proven failure. The grace of God is given indiscriminately to those who will receive it. Go and do likewise. And lastly, be unjust like God. The elder brother says, no reconciliation without justice. Punish sin. Reward virtue. Don't create incentives for people to squander your wealth. And yet the father pays no mind to just deserts and retribution. He receives and receives and receives again. Go 
and do likewise.